It's the 1980s in Manhattan. These are the solid days of Wall Street. Times have been good, and so has the money. Just a decade earlier, New York City was on the brink of bankruptcy. But now, Mayor Ed Koch has declared the fiscal crisis officially over. The city is coming back. After years of decline, New York City is rapidly growing. Wall Street is booming. And every corner of Manhattan seems to be changing. Except for one. As other parts of the city get redeveloped, the Lower East Side resists. For the past 48 hours, video has been surfacing like this sequence, in which the police approach a demonstrator and begin first berating him, then beating and chasing him. All right, all right, all right, I'm getting down. I'm getting down. Give me a chance. I didn't do anything. Give me a chance. 400 police officers clash with 200 protesters at Tompkins Square Park on the night of August 6th, 1988. Somebody call an ambulance! Call an ambulance! We don't got no weapons! It's the squatters and the activists versus the police who are trying to enact a curfew on Tompkins Square. There were a lot of young artists and a lot of sort of the punk style of the time, anarchists, some local community folk, a lot of homeless people, a lot of junkies who were visaging a new way of living. And the police, they just clubbed and beat and kicked and smashed everybody. The police brutalized protesters and bystanders. And once video of that brutality gets out, The clashes are recognized as a police riot, one of the rare few in New York City history. That's where most recollections of the Tompkins Square Park riot end. But it's where our story begins. The last thing protesters do is break through the lobby of the Christodora House a luxury condominium right across the street from the park. People spontaneously went to the Cristadora and smashed the front door in with a police barricade. It's the only tall building in the neighborhood. This was the building that's casting the shadow on the park. At the Cristadora house, the riot ends. But there's a reason it ends there. The Cristadora was seen as the enemy of the Lower East Side. But how did this building become the center of class warfare in the 80s? I'm Nancy Viflani. I'm Selena Arredondo. You're listening to Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This season, we go back to the summer of 1988 to the Tompkins Square Park riot. This is season four, It's Our Fucking Park. You're listening to Where the Riot Ended. We started this story to understand why. Why did protesters target the Cristadora house? They were chanting Cristadora. And die, yuppie scum. 
But why this building? The Twisted Dora building in the background, which has been the scene of numerous clashes between residents of the neighborhood who have been here. Why not any other building? What we found was the Cristadora has a long history in the Lower East Side. And a big part of the hostility against it came from the fact that it was built as a settlement house in 1928, a place to help people. The settlements helped translate the vision of America into something newcomers could grasp. Settlements taught them English, new work skills, found housing for them, and cared for their children. Even the name, Cristadora, means gift of Christ. And it was built to be spectacular, 16 stories high. It had a pool, a gymnasium, classrooms, a theater, and a concert hall. When it opened, it was actually the tallest settlement house in the world. And still today, it towers over all the other buildings in the Lower East Side. But the group that built it eventually moved out in 1948. After that, the building eventually became abandoned. It would sit empty for 15 years. But it would never lose its reputation as an emblem of social justice. As we dug deeper, one name kept coming up. A man known as Jerry the Peddler. He didn't have a phone and he wasn't online. So Selena and I just knocked on his door one evening. I'm missing Jeopardy right now. Come on in, <laughs> it's almost over. He's busy watching Jeopardy on TV, but he let us in. Jerry is one of the people who broke into the Christadora the night of the riot. He was a squatter in the Lower East Side at the time. He has a long white beard, and his apartment is crammed with stacks of clutter. I'm the world's worst housekeeper. Yeah, I'm not that kind of messy. I'm just a slob. He walks us in, sits on his yellow stained mattress, and crosses his legs. Then he tells us about the years leading up to the riot. And you either did very well under Ronald Reagan or you did very badly. We had hundreds of people sleeping in our parks and under our bridges and in piss-stinking doorways. Okay, because by this time, there were dozens of empty buildings down Jerry says there were dozens of empty buildings, but there were more than dozens. There were roughly 400 abandoned buildings or empty lots in the Lower East Side by the early 80s. The landlords had walked away when the city almost went bankrupt in the 70s. So people started squatting instead. And these squatters took over the Lower East Side. Within the space of a few short blocks here, relative affluence mingles with abject poverty. By day, the homeless frequent parks and roam the streets. By night, they take up residence in buildings you would swear were empty. But Jerry says life was good. By the time that we started squatting, you were parading all over the neighborhood and telling people, yo, peace, and let's get these buildings together and let's create some gardens. We're putting flowers in our hair and we're dressing up as fruits and flowers and vegetables. Except it didn't last. And by the end of the decade, we're standing shoulder to shoulder in front of bonfires in the night facing off against legions of cops. And what changed? Well, the money coming in to the Lower East Side. 
all that barren land the squatters called home caught the eye of developers. And the squatters, they just wanted to be left alone. But Manhattan was in the middle of a property boom. Discover Manhattan, the most fantastic island in the world. All that destruction and decay from the 70s, it was being bought, fixed, and sold for astronomical prices. And that's exactly what happened to the Cristadora. When we arrived, the, in, the, the inside had just been completely trashed. I mean, there was graffiti everywhere. It was just a mess. I mean, We got in touch with Sam Glasser. He and a partner bought the Cristadora house and redeveloped it into luxury condos. He lives in Missouri now. The demolition and the removal of, of all this crap, you know, the building was screwed beyond belief. It was- At this point, we knew Glasser and other developers like him were made out to be the bad guys. The ones who came in and ruined an era of squatting and affordable housing in the Lower East Side. We wanted to know what he thought of it all. I wonder, why do you think the Crisadora was the target? There was, there was nothing like it in the area. And they were targeting it for their wrath and ire and anger for the same reason that I targeted it. Okay, it stands out. I mean, it's one of a kind. It is absolutely sui generis. I mean, there's 16, 17 stories. This magnificent building, all by itself. Look at the door. Look at the money in there. Look at people buying apartments for $300,000. Wow, they're evil. So if you're going to go after anything uh, that represents money or anything like that, you would, you, of course you would choose Christodora House. And he was still upset talking about it all these years later. You know, when a neighborhood reverses direction dramatically, there's always uh, that group, I mean, that will... Uh, just hate because they, they weren't making any money from themselves or they adhere to a totally different value system than others did. Knock it down, you know? I mean, are you kidding? Like throwing people out of their apartment? Nobody was throwing anybody out of any apartment <clears throat> that I was aware of. Nobody was throwing anybody out of any apartment, he said. That's true. The Cristadora wasn't being occupied. But once it was turned into luxury condos, the people who moved in, they would ignite the class war in the Lower East Side. It has been quite a time for the yuppie, the young, upwardly mobile professional. Welcome to that new age. They call themselves yuppies. We're going for the six figure. That's all we want. The 80s was a time of wealth and excess. A decade that inspired Madonna's 1984 classic, Material Girl. And the 1987 movie, Wall Street, with that famous line. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. It was a time of extreme prosperity alongside extreme poverty. And the Cristadora was the pinnacle of that. It's officially reopened as luxury condos in 1986. There's no question but that that the people in the Cristadora um, had more money than almost everybody else in the East Village. Sidney Davidson moved into the Cristadora house three years before the Tompkins Square Park riot. And Victoria Owen, she moved in two years before. Yeah, it was my little slice of heaven on earth. That was the best part of it I've ever lived in. <laughs> 
Victoria lives in Seattle now, but in 86, she was a reporter. She paid $125,000 for a condo in the Cristadora. Sydney was a banker. He bought two condos on the sixth floor, but never got around to combining them. Both were Ivy League graduates, young and affluent. They liked the spirit of the Lower East Side. It was an interesting neighbourhood, a unique opportunity, great value, and I was drawn to that. It was this very microcosm of, you know, uh, a real mix of people. But they felt the animosity from the rest of the neighbourhood. The squatters called them yuppie scum. The Cristador was an abandoned building. We did not displace anybody. I'm not saying I wasn't yuppie scum because I was a white, you know, upper middle class person living in New York at that time. I mean, I knew what I was doing. I, everyone in the building was white, but you also just sort of felt like most of people were young adults trying to, you know, make their way in the city and, and they didn't want to be um, cast, aspersions cast on them. You know, we were uh, customers of local businesses, so the shirts I wore had to be laundered and ironed. Did anybody speak of the, the cleaner, Kim? He was uh, Korean. He would do dry cleaning and wash, and, and he took care of that. And there were a number of us who, who used Kim. So um, he, uh, he had a thriving business because of the number of uh, white-collar people at the Cristadora. You know, we assured that the community didn't fall into more littering and drug use and... The people of the Cristadora house felt they had a right to be there. The squatters saw it differently. There was a lot of anger and, and resentment out there. That's Kenny Toglia, a squatter. The Cristador building is really the, the crown of the whole area. It was, it was built for poor people, and ultimately it's been turned over like to the ultra-rich. The Cristador building had become the symbol of gentrification on the Lower East Side. Okay, it was... That's Jerry again. To bring in all these millionaires to the heart of our neighborhood. Always felt like they were just rubbing it in our face. We rubbed it right back. Squatters and activists started taunting the Cristador house and the people who lived there. Like Bill de Paula, an activist. He and his friends used to draw twigs and take turns vandalizing the Cristadora. So then this guy grabs twigs and he breaks the twigs in all different pieces. And when you pull the twig out, which everybody did, if you got the shortest twig, you had to do something to the Cristadora, either throw paint at it or something. So that was a typical night. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria and Sydney weren't amused. And at nighttime, it was the Wild West. Tompkins Square Park, it was an open, uh, open market for, for drugs, uh, crack, cocaine, marijuana, heroin. Community members started to complain. In the months before the riot, there was a rise in noise and nuisance reports. It's unclear if any of these complaints came from the Cristadora residents or not. Either way, tensions got out of control fast. Two months before the riot, the Lower East Side's local community board voted to enact a 1am curfew on the park. 
hoping it would restore law and order. The city had gone around to every entrance in the park, and in big letters like this, they wrote, the park closes at midnight. Jerry remembered seeing the signs go up, so squatters started posting their own. Cristadora for the people, not the rich. And take our homes? We'll take the streets, they said. Cops started regulating the park at night. Six days before the riot, Jerry and his friend Paul DiRienzo were walking by Tompkins Square when Jerry picked a fight with police. And I come walking into the park with a case of beer in my hands. I grabbed one. Everybody started grabbing beers. I got these four cops five feet behind me. I got a crowd of people five feet in front of me. And Jerry, drunk as a skunk. That's Paul. Comes walking over to the cops and he goes, starts making trouble. You, fuck you, you can't cause this park. And I'll never forget the cops saying, I ain't gonna arrest you this time, Jerry. May I take my beer and I start shaking it like this, going, pigs out of the park, pigs out of the park. And as soon as I got the whole crowd to chanting, I took this beer that I had shaken up, opened it, turned around and sprayed down the cops with it. <laughs> crowd went crazy. <laughs> and then the cop looks up and goes, you're under arrest. And they jump Jerry and they take him away. Uh, four of us went to jail. Got out Monday morning, right Saturday night. And we called for another demonstration. That Saturday demonstration? That would be August 6th, 1988. The night of the Tompkins Square Park riot. Hey, you could feel the tension between us and the cops all week long. Yeah, we'd be walking down the street and be like, looking for you Saturday night. Yeah, we, we had made, <laughs> made pools out of them. Jerry was still giddy from shaking the can of beer all over the cops when Saturday night rolled around. By 11.30 p.m., Roughly 150 protesters were at the park. 100 police officers were there too, some on horseback. And, uh, you know, the, the crowd, it was like a, you know, a monster that kept reforming itself and coming back together and, and splitting up. And That's Kenny again, a squatter. And here's Jerry. Yeah, we, we were always said, yeah, stay out of our way. We get in our way, we get in the face. <laughs> We'd rather not, but we will. <laughs> okay. We'd rather just sit down, smoke a joint, and just all get along. But if you want to fight, we can fight. The police were there to enforce the curfew. But it was more than that. chanting, whose fucking park, our fucking park. There was a lot of repressed uh, anger then. The street people had been treated as subhumans for most of their lives. It was really about pushing the poor people out of the, the inner cities. By midnight, some people were throwing firecrackers. Others were holding a big banner saying gentrification is class war. Fight back. 12.30 a.m., Protesters began marching. They blocked traffic. 
around 12.45 a.m., the riot started. Here come the police. They're now coming across the street. They're coming across the street. They have their clubs out. They're attacking the crowd. Someone threw bottles at the cops. That's when police got violent. And the cops are going crazy. The squatters, the anarchists, the demonstrators. Okay, most of us were experienced enough not to get hit. The people that got hit were the people that were coming out of the bars and going up, excuse me, what's going on? Yeah, hundreds of crazy cops rampaging up and down the street beating their neighbors. It was, it was way out of control. The police, they just went crazy and started beating every, everybody in sight. So a lot of them weren't from the 9th Precinct. The local police captain had called for backup. But he didn't just make a standard call. He also sent out a code 1085, which is a city-wide police call for assistance. By 1 a.m., 400 cops were at Tompkins Square Park many of them from all over Manhattan and Brooklyn. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely uh, was, was not outside. Uh, as I recall, there was tear gas. We asked Sydney and Victoria what they remembered. It was just clear that Tompkins Square Park was just full of piss and vinegar energy, and it, it wasn't a surprise, let's put it that way. I hate to say this, I was slightly amused. Shortly after 1 a.m., a police helicopter was called in. The helicopter's now passing over 8th Street, hovering about 75 feet directly above the crowd. You have people getting beaten bloody, and it's not us. Jerry was running and dodging the cops until one officer caught up to him. And this is the only time I got hit that night. He kicks me right square in the back and yells, Who's fucking park? And as I'm pouring down to my knees, I'm like, Our fucking park. The fighting went on till sunrise. Then, cops dispersed at 6 a.m. One minute we were fighting the cops, and the next minute it's 6 o'clock, and the cops are saying, Okay, it's all over. Everybody go home. <laughs> they can go back in the park now. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and they did. They just turned around and walked away. <laughs> Countless bodies laying everywhere. <laughs> Blood-stained sidewalks in the whole nine yards. And we're like, wow. <laughs> Jerry explained what happened next. We go into the park and like, there wasn't anything else to do. Um, we had like, picked on the Cristadora building almost from the time it opened. And I went into the Cristadora building. We, we just trashed the lobby. We took a potted tree out of the lobby and into the park and tore all the light fixtures out of the wall, turned a few things in. You know, we just, just basic trashing. Kenny was there too. It was one of those things where it was the spontaneous mind of the crowd itself that just drew everyone, like everyone spontaneously just knew, let's go to the Cristadora. That's usually how that goes. Once that was over, so was the riot. 
I was standing on the street and this woman who was standing next to me was so moved by the whole thing that she just grabbed me and kissed me. <laughs> just out of nowhere. Just out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. That, that really so, summarized the whole night for me or symbolized it or whatever you will. We started this story to understand why. Why was the Cristador house hated in the Lower East Side? We spoke to 20 people, went to the Cristadora, dug through hundreds of archival documents, watched hours of footage from the 80s. At some point along the way, flipping through old photos of punk rock street kids in Tompkins Square Park, or standing in Jerry's chaotic apartment, we understood. See, underneath all of that, the rubble-strewn lots and the dead junkies and the cops, that was a real neighborhood. It was one of these places that you could really come and uh, really relax and, and feel free. There were nearly 1,000 people squatting in the Lower East Side in the 80s. From that movement grew a mecca of punk music, art and activism. It was a tiny escape from the glow and greed of the time. It was a neighborhood that challenged the idea of urban spaces and what an urban community could be. And the Cristadora house wasn't the enemy, but it was a good target. Six cops were indicted for brutality. And after August 6th, the park was eventually closed for a year. By the time it reopened, the Lower East Side had changed. Its era of counterculture was over. But some of the squatters did go legit. The city offered them payment plans to take ownership of their buildings as co-ops. And the Christadora? We started calling her Chrissy. She still towers over the Lower East Side. But if you want a room in the one skyscraper settlement house, it could cost you upwards of a million dollars. A latte across the street? That'll run you 10 bucks. And don't even try to get a restaurant reservation around there on the weekend. Trust us, we've tried. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Selena Arredondo. And me, Mansi Baflani. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Cuesta and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Digital Libraries, Professor Dale Maharaj, Ron Kuby, Clayton Patterson, and Paul DiRienzo. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Doron Zunez, and Camille Miller, remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our season four graphic was created by Lena Fanza and Gia Haydar.